Good afternoon and welcome to our Bible study today. Uh, we continue our study of Genesis. We are uh, going to have to, um, uh, well, we're going to start from the end of chapter eight. We didn't uh, finish quite, uh, quite finish the last few verses of uh, chapter eight last time because it starts a new section that runs into chapter nine. Uh, so today we will begin in um, uh, chapter eight, verse 18. And then uh, through, no, I, I beg your pardon, I'm in the wrong place. Uh, so 29. we will begin in verse 20, and then we'll run as far uh, as we can uh, from there to the end, as far into the chapter 9 as we possibly can. Uh, we might even be able to finish the whole thing, even though there are other verses, because it's quite repetitive, and a fair bit of it is narrative. Uh, which doesn't require too much comment, but we will see how that goes. But let's first begin our study by asking for God's blessing. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Holy Father, we thank you for giving us your life-giving word, making yourself known to us and communicating to us and delivering to us your grace, your mercy, and the knowledge of your will. And so guide and govern us now by the Holy Spirit that in our study of your word we might be brought to renewed repentance and faith and led to live our lives as your children in this world so that we receive the salvation of our bodies and our souls. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Right, so last time we uh, finished with uh, God uh, putting an end to the flood, the flood, uh, the car coming to rest. And at the end of our study, we saw Noah and his family and all the animals, uh, leave the ark. What comes after this now is Noah's response and God's response, uh, to the flood, uh, to the end of the flood. And, uh, what I'd like to do to begin with is to read just the last uh, three verses of uh, chapter 8. So if anybody would like to do a short reading, here's your chance. Uh, last three verses, so verses 20, uh, 21 and 22 uh, of Genesis 8. I will. Thank you. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said to to his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Thank you. <clears throat> Comments? I, I have one of my Lutheran questions. Um, it's tied in with verse 20. I don't know if it's suitable for this time, but um, I, I would like to know why Lutherans call the communion table the altar, um, because non-Lutherans would call it the table or the communion table. 
So I'm just curious because the word altars come up in verse 20. Has a question it's a good question to ask because this is the first altar in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The first, uh, this is the first altar, recorded altar in history, uh, at least in the biblical history. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's, it's a good thing for us maybe to start by, uh, meditating on that. Has anyone else got any other questions or comments before we do that? Well, the, the Anglican Church have always called it an altar. Yeah, we'll, we'll look at that in a minute, but any other questions, sorry, then altar, altar related question. What was it, mate? Oh, sorry. What was it in the different languages? What was it called? We will, we will talk about the altar in a minute. I'm asking if there's any other questions. I find it quite interesting that he says that, uh, that, uh, because the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. It's like, as if we would, as, as, um, people would say that, okay, I give up. <laughs> it doesn't help. Yeah, it's, it's, I was, uh, looking up some, um, commentaries on this, on this passage, uh, in preparation. And, uh, one of the commentaries I looked at compared what Luther and Calvin had, had to say about this particular verse and this phrase. And, uh, the commentator simply said, Neither Luther nor Calvin really resolved the apparent discrepancy. But God says, I will not curse because of the evil of man's heart. We will, uh, we will try to do better than Luther and Calvin in a minute. How about that for, ambi- for an ambition? We'll try to resolve that discrepancy. But yes, yeah, I think you are, you're absolutely right. It's, it, it seems incongruous, seems strange that God should say, I won't curse because of the evil of, the, of man's heart. Good observation. Well, let's begin with the altar then. <clears throat> so, having come out of the ark, having received salvation, and having been given the privilege of being at the head of the restoration of creation, Noah responds by building an altar and making an offering of every clean animal and some of as of some of, of, I took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and often burnt offerings to the altar. You remember that there were more clean animals than unclean animals on the ark, and this uh, is at least one of the reasons why that is the case. It was quite, it would have been quite a pyre. It would have taken quite a while if you say, take a sum of every clean animal and every clean bird, um, even if you allow that the ark can only fit so many animals. This was not a, a quick thing. And I think the first thing to notice is that when we read in the Bible about sacrifices being made, because we live in, uh, at the end of kind of, at a point of history where the Christian faith has been around for such a very long time, and especially here in, in, uh, in Europe, it's been more or less the exclusive uh, a religion for over a thousand years in most places now. I think the last major European part of Europe to be sort of converted from paganism to Christianity uh, was, uh, it's either Latvia, I think it's Lithuania or Latvia. There, there were some sort of pagan rules still in the 1400s there. But since then, and obviously in Western Europe and Southern Europe much longer, we are very far removed from temple worship and from sacrificial worship. 
There's a good chance uh, that there will be people here who have not even witnessed the slaughter of an animal. And has everyone here witnessed the slaughtering of animals? I've never seen an animal killed. Okay. Um, I wouldn't have done. I I had a very... uh, One of my science teachers at school was uh, an unreformed, ungrown-up boy, uh, middle-aged boy, and and, uh, he had been a sheep farmer and he'd been uh, a... uh, an international swimmer and now he and, and he then became a scientist and then he became a science teacher and since we were in a boarding school in 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 uh, Kenya he thought and, and and the school owned some sheep he thought when he came to the biology lesson when you do dissection why let's do it properly and so we lesson began with a live sheep and it ended with bits of sheep oh charming uh, <laughs> but yes that's rather exceptional so the the whole experience of of the slaughtering of animals, let alone the burning thereof, is something that we just don't, isn't part of our world. It's noisy, it's smelly, and it's quite hard work. And so Noah really, kind of, he really goes to town and he doesn't just take a sheep or a goat or maybe a pair of turtle doves and, you know, uh, or a chicken and, and offer them to the Lord. But he takes a whole menagerie and he works his way through them. And always when we see the word sacrifice in the Bible, think of gore and death and mess. And if you've ever really, really burnt uh, a steak or some other meat at dinner, you know that burning meat doesn't smell very nice. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's an untidy affair. As it should be. Because what's going on in sacrifice, essentially, life is being extinguished. And that's, and death, as we know, is the enemy. Death is not a happy or a good thing. Death is a bad thing. And, and so, you know, let's take that as the first note. This is, this is not a charming and tidy scene. This is anything. Which is appropriate because all the Old Testament sacrifices are ultimately pointed to the cross of Christ. And we, the one thing that we have some familiarity with, even though it's only from a kind of narrative point of view where we really heard the stories and maybe seen paintings, you know, imagine pictures of the death of Jesus the ultimate sacrifice, the, the sacrifice, the kind of the, the full final sacrifice which to which all the other sacrifices simply point, that was not a tidy affair. If you were at or listened to Vespers last night, you will have heard again the account of Jesus' crucifixion. He was a terrible thief. And so that other, that other sacrifice should be likewise, uh, to, you know, if like ugly scenes, is appropriate already on that count. <clears throat> But what is happening? Why would Noah take these animals and offer them as burnt offerings on the altar? Because he was very pleased that he was still alive after being in that problem on the sea. Yes, you're right. But why would he express his gratitude in this way as opposed to some other way? Why, you know, he doesn't say, then Noah, 
did what Moses did after the crossing of the Red Sea and struck up a song of praise to God. He didn't strike up a song of praise. He started slaughtering animals. Well, wasn't it the done thing in those days to take this is the first animals old, this is the first to... Part of it. Uh, other than, I mean, we had Abel, Abel of bring, brought offerings of animals to God as well. Yeah. But the, 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 we, we should, generally speaking, not assume that anything in the Bible is done just because it's the done thing. Things are always for a good reason. I don't know if it's the answer, but <clears throat> the flood speaks to me of, of, of death across the, the whole world. And yet there's salvation coming out of that death in terms of the ark. And now the first thing that he, that Noah does is, is there's more death, um, in order to express salvation somehow. So that, that's the only thing I can draw from that. Yeah. And this is, the, the language is important here. I mean, it talks about burnt offerings and then the pleasing aroma. And if you, uh, if you read the law of Moses and particularly Leviticus, which sets out the regulations for the various sacrifices and rituals and so on, you will know that there are different kinds of sacrifices in the Bible. There are, and, and in, in the, uh, in the later law of Moses. And some some sacrifices are for sin, others are offerings, um, and and so on. And the whole burnt offering in uh, in uh, in the the Greek word is holocaustos, which gives us the word holocaust. Whole burnt offering is always is described in terms of the pleasing aroma. In other words, if the the whole burnt offering is like a it's the offering up of our lives and our livelihoods to God. So it's like a presentation of ourselves to God and a dedication to God of ourselves and our whole lives by means of taking something of which is our, if you like, our livelihood. So a clean animal and offering that up and the whole thing is burned, not just, you know, most other sacrifices. Uh, only the fat was burned with a couple of other bits and the rest of it, something else was done with. So somebody would eat it. And sin offering was eaten by the priests. The, the, uh, peace offering was eaten by the, by the worshippers. But in this particular case, we have a whole burnt offering, a burnt offering, which is a pleasing aroma, which is Noah essentially acknowledging that his life and the life of the whole of creation, because it takes some of every clean animal. So the life of all living creatures. Is God's. It's a returning to God that which is His in His totality. And that's the, that's the point of the point of So when Noah comes out, it's, it's an acknowledgement say, we're alive and it's entirely due to you, God. And so He dedicates, if you like, the, he, he takes a portion of everything in the, in the living world, uh, referring to all living creatures or so animal world. And returns it to God, dedicates it to God. This is not unrelated, actually, to things, you know, you remember in, in the conquest of the promised land in the book of Judges, where some things are, some cities are devoted to destruction. Where, which means, and, and also later on, there's this idea of devoting things to destruction, which means that they are, they become holy. In other words, God, they say, these, God says, these are mine. You don't get to keep any loot. You don't get to keep anybody alive. You don't get to take any of the, 
any of the treasures away. No, everything must be destroyed because it's mine. And it becomes God's by remove. It's essentially removed from circulation. In the same way that, uh, uh, you know, later on again in the law of Moses, the firstborn of, of every herd and flock belongs to God. And you do that by you either take it to be, you know, sacrifice the thing. So like the first fall of, of a donkey or uh, whatever, uh, you either sacrifice it to God as a sacrifice, or if you won't, for whatever reason, then you break its neck. Because it's not yours. So you don't need to keep it and use it. It belongs to God. And so it's removed from general circulation. Like it's no longer common. It has become holy. And that's the, that's the sort of, um, like the, um, the, the, uh, the sort of landscape, the, the spiritual landscape in which the Bible operates. And that's what it also, that's why it also means, you know, when it says, like in Romans 12, where Paul talks about, uh, uh, offering ourselves as a, as a, as a, as a sacrifice to God, you know, that our pray, you know, and, and in Hebrews 13 talks about the, our pray, praises being an offering to God, but you know, that, that we, uh, give our lives and our body, you know, and, and we had elsewhere talk about our lives and our bodies being offering, offered as a sacrifice to God as an offering. It's to say, I'm no longer mine. I now belong to God. And that also happens through death, but it's the death of Christ into which I am uh, united in which I'm united, you know, I'm baptized into his death and, and I have died with Christ and I live with him. And so this death in, in Christ and is the death of the old me, which means I'm now dedicated to God. I'm no longer in general circulation. It's like I'm no longer common property of the world. I know property of God. And therefore my life is no longer an expression of my will or the will of uh, somebody else or of the world or of the devil. No, my life is now an expression of the will of God and I am to be used and I therefore will put myself to the use of God for his purposes. And so this is, these are the sorts of things that Noah is expressing when he offers these things. His gratitude is expressed by taking some of the survivors and dedicating them to God, giving them over to God. So right, you have these lives because these lives are ours. And the, if you like the, 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 the pleasing aroma what makes, I mean, the pleasing aroma is not, this is not an aesthetic judgment. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, burning incense, uh, or, or, or some kind of a nice lavender water into the air. Why is it a pleasing aroma to God? What, what makes it pleasing? Given that, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually, it smells quite bad. <laughs> I think, I don't, I've never met anybody who likes the smell of burning meat. I don't know if you'd like it, but. Because, uh, Noah did the, the right thing in the sight of God. Exactly. So the, the, ple- you know, the pleasure that God takes in this is in the dedication, in the, in the devotion of the thing. I don't mean devotion in the sense of a pious feeling, but rather in the devotion of the act. The fact that the, that Noah acknowledged the gift of life and the gift of creation and expressed it in a way that, uh, uh, was uh, if like appropriate, an appropriate response to that acknowledgement. So, so Noah acts in a way that gives glory to God and is pleasing to him. There's no way that he could have burned elephants and rhinoceroses, surely. Why not? Well, they're big. Well, you have to chop them small, chop them off small. You could eat a whole cow, just not in one go. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a full-grown adult, does it? There's nothing no. in this. It could be a um, youngster. A youngster, you know. 
Yeah, and again, you know, we're not told that when, how long this took or when he was. You know, there, you know, there, this might have been quite a, you know, quite a long, long drawn out affair. I hope that he found plenty of firewood. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, just um, ask another question in relation to sacrifice. Hebrews thirteen that you mentioned, it says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse verse twelve. Um, I've been thinking, um, the Old Testament talks about types. So the, uh, a lamb is brought to the, to the sacrifice and it's killed. In a sense, it's like a, um, it's a straight kill. It's not, it's not tortured or abused or mutilated. But when, when Christ went to die on the cross, um, it says he suffered. And so, there seems to be a slight difference between the the sacrifice in the Old Testaments and Christ. You know, none of those animals suffered unnecessarily, mm-hmm. but Christ suffered. And I just want to know what why was that necessary for Christ to suffer? What you know, why why was he not killed immediately? I know it's not a nice thing to say, but um why did he have to suffer? Okay, now the I think the short answer to that is that Christ Death was not just the fulfillment of one kind of sacrifice, but of all sacrifices. And again, there were there were all kinds of sacrifices. So the day Good Friday is not just the day of uh, the making of the sin offering, but also is the day of atonement. And you remember the day of atonement, the you have the scapegoat, uh, which has all the sins of the people laid on it by the high priest, and then is is driven out into the wilderness. Uh, it's driven out away from the people and away from the camp and away from the flock, which is to say driven out to die. And that suffering of that scapegoat, like he's on behalf of the people who have sinned. And Christ became the scapegoat. And so there is, there is that kind of element of just punishment you sometimes hear when people get very, very angry at some criminal, uh, somebody does something horrible, and you say it's you know, they're kind of you know, it's you you hear people say things like you know being shot would be too kind a punishment. You you know you come across the sentiment I expect, you know, be too nice. And the idea is you know somebody if somebody does something horrible to somebody, then it's not good enough for them just to have a quick exit out of this world, but they you know they needs to be drawn out, you know, boil them slowly or something. Um, and uh and there's there's an element of truth in that. We'll see that a bit later in chapter nine, but there's an element of truth in that. In an eye for an eye tooth for a tooth actually is something that God said. And so Christ when he when he suffered for our sins, he didn't just suffer he didn't just die because the wages of sin is death or that you know de- sins deserve death, but he suffered the punishment that is due, which is proportionate to the sins of the world world, and so he suffered. And not just died. And it's very interesting, for example, how in the creed sometimes they need to, um, uh, like nice degrees, he suffered and was buried. Which doesn't imply that he was buried alive. It just means that he was suffered and the, the suffering is actually the, is, is, is the, is the thing that we focus on. Mm. And you see that in the gospels. I mean, we, I don't, I, I don't know how many of you did catch the uh, Vespers last night. Uh, but the fact that in, in, it was considered to be very distasteful in the ancient world to talk about 
uh, the de what happens at crucifixions, even though crucifixions were everywhere all the time. You know, wherever you went in, in and out of big cities and smaller towns as well, in the Roman Empire, you would you'd be very likely to stumble upon scenes of crucifixions. And yet people never talk about the details. Then you read the Gospels and they give you the details quite, you know, it was quite a lot of sort of uh, a focus on, on, on each bit. You know, you've got the crown, you've got the flogging, you've got the, the beating, the spitting, you've got the mocking, you've got the carrying of the cross, the collapsing under the cross, the practice and the, the nailing, the, yeah, and, and so on. It's piercing of the side. All of those are given to us, you know, in, in quite a lot of detail. Even the anguish of Jesus in Gethsemane is described in a way that would have been distasteful to its first audience, culture. Why? Because the sufferings were for us. And so that's, that, that would be, that would be, but it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question, which is why I answered. It's obviously not, that's, that's not what's happening here. Because here we don't have a sin offering. This is not Noah sacrificing, uh, in a, 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 a sacrifice of atonement for his sins, but rather it's a, it's a thanks offering, which places us in parallel here with Abel. Abel too, Offered, you remember, uh, made offerings from his flock, so animal sacrifice um, to God, and he was a righteous man. Now Noah, we're told, was a righteous man also, and he makes offerings not from the flock but from the whole creation, of which he is now, if you like, the the, the head of this the head stands at the head of the new creation or renewed creation. Now let's go into that footnote about what about this altar. Uh, we don't, we're not told anything more about this altar, but we know that altars, until the tabernacle was built, altars were made of stone. Generally speaking, you know, you find this in all sorts of cultures. You simply find, find it, make an arrangement of stones, uh, to build an altar, uh, because it's fireproof <laughs> and, and sturdy. Uh, you make it out of wood and, 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 and you'll be building one every, every hour. Um, now, an altar really is a is a place of offering. That's what the the word roughly means: a place of offering. Uh, and <clears throat> he built this an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh. And an altar, therefore, is is used throughout the Old Testament. You find altars um, cropping up quite a lot already in various places. Uh, Abraham built an altar for this for the sacrifice or near sacrifice of Isaac, and uh, we have uh, altars being built at various po- places at various points by people until the establishment of the altar in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and then uh, a couple of centuries later in the Jerusalem temple. However. People built altars and sacrificed altars, not just in Jerusalem, not just in the tabernacle, but uh, wherever they were. Because, of course, if you you know if you want to make sacrifice to God, you can do it at home. It's a lot easier than if you have to travel all the way to wherever the tabernacle is or to Jerusalem. And this became a point of real contention throughout the entire period of the kingdom. After the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And we have this, if you read through the uh, second book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, you find that there's this ongoing, uh, ongoing, uh, debate and discussion going on all the time. So 
about the the places of offering. Uh, you know, can people just sacrifice wherever, or do they have to go to Jerusalem? And the scriptures, you know, say that God has chosen a place. Now, uh, that terminology made its way into the church somewhat belatedly. I haven't done the homework on exactly when Christians began to call uh, the table for the Lord's, um, for celebrating the Lord's Supper, an altar. Uh, very interestingly, though, the uh, and if, if you, if you, I'm sure you're all very interested in reading liturgical manuals. Uh, but if you read the liturgical manuals, you will know that in English, when you talk about the altar, the the top surface. Uh, of the altar is called a mensa. And if you know any Latin at all, you know that means table. <laughs> so, uh, we're not quite as, you know, the, the, the it's, it's not quite such a big, uh, big di- di- difference or discrepancy as such. Now, there are two ways of thinking about it. Uh, there's a good way and a bad way. The bad way is to think about it in terms of the medieval doc, uh, late medieval doctrine of the sacrifice of the mass, where uh, you know, the, the priest repeats, uh, or represents or re-offers the sacrifice of Christ to God, uh, by the miracle of transubstantiation. And therefore, you call it the altar because it's the place where the sacrifice is reenacted, if you like. That's a bad reason. Because we, that's not what happens. It's not a sacrifice. It's a sacrament. It's something that is given to us for grace from God rather than by us to God. And so, <coughs> Excuse me. So, what's the alternative? What 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 else could it be? Um, well, the other way of, and the if you like right way of understanding it, and the reason why the Lutheran Church calls it an altar is that because people have been calling it an altar for centuries by the time of the Reformation, and the Lutheran reformers were not keen to start changing everything. They just say, you know, or oh, it's enough to teach people to understand things correctly, and you can keep the old names because why why would you just you know why would you want want to reinvent the whole terminology? Uh, if you don't need to. Uh, but of course, there is a very direct, there's a direct link between the sacrifice, and we'll see this a bit later on as well, the sacrifice of the cross and what happens at the altar. Now, what happens at the altar in church is not that we sacrifice anything to God except ourselves in Thanksgiving. A sacrifice of praise in Thanksgiving. And I feel like our dedication of ourselves, a devotion of ourselves to God, um, you know, in, in the, in the sort of prayers, um, uh, particularly in the prayers of, of the service. But what happens there is that this, the, what, if like what Jesus sacrificed on the cross, which is his body and blood, is presented not by us, but to us. In other words, we participate in the sacrifice of Christ by eating the sacrifice, which is, you know, it's, it's not linked to this here, but it's, it was, um, the whole point of the peace offering, which is such an important thing. It was also, I mean, there is no such thing as a secular thing in the ancient world. I mean, everything was religious, uh, and nothing was secular, but outside the, if you like, the, the narrow sphere of worship as such, if you like, temple worship. And across cultures, until quite recently, in fact, Sitting down, when, when people made made covenants or agreements or deals, anything like that, contracts, uh, it was a common way with any sort of serious things, um, things of import. The the two halves agree in the agreement would sit down together, 
and eat a meal together. And that meal and the table fellowship that they had would be like the, you know what we might call the handshake, uh, but it was a, it was it was a more significant thing. So once you had agreed the terms and you then sat down, you cut and the the Hebrew word is to cut a covenant to make a covenant because it's always involved the shedding of blood. And there was two sides to it. One side of it was that you know the end something died in the course of making this deal, and so so be it to you if you break this covenant. You know it's kind of as a warning, but also it establishes friendship and common cause, and you express that by eating together. And the peace offering in the Old Testament is that. We present an animal sacrifice, and then we get to eat and essentially sit down with God for table fellowship, and thereby God expresses friendship with us and intimacy. And now that peace offering is the body and blood of Jesus, which is the the ever, you know, uh, the, the uh, never-diminishing and ever-abundant gift of the sacrifice that was slain on the cross is being now presented to us as our our meal so that we are again we are enjoying table fellowship with god with the food that he has provided as his expression of his intent to renew the covenant that he made with us or the testament with christ's death and so to call it an altar as the place where where the bread and the wine are consecrated and from which the food is then distributed to the congregation is perfectly appropriate because that then makes the link with the peace offering of the Old Testament where also the animals, was, you know, the, the sacrifice was made and then from the altar a portion was taken to the, the congregation to eat. Bit of a history lesson there, sorry, it's in, but uh, I hope that was... Uh, very good. good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And, and so generally speaking, churches that have continued... Uh, um, in the liturgical tradition, so yeah, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Lutheran Anglican particularly, um, have retained that term. Uh, whereas in, in the, so most other Protestant, Protestant denominations, that word was specifically replaced by the word table, um, to disassociate it from the sacrifice of the mass, I suspect. And then also later on, just because there was antagonism, kind of anti-Catholic antagonism. So we, you know, we're trying to be as distinctive as possible. Now, then we get to the verse 21. Let's get back to the, the text. Uh, God said, smelt the pleasing aroma. I, he was, it gave him pleasure. Um, it's the, um, the word that, uh, he, when it's translated into Greek in the, uh, in Septuagint, uh, it's the same word that is used by the angels, uh, when they announced uh, the birth of Jesus, the shepherds, the goodwill. Uh, so it's, it's a Roman for like a goodwill. Uh, but, uh, the Lord said in his heart, what does that mean? God say in his heart. What is the heart? Pumps the blood. It does, but God doesn't have blood. So what do we mean that was, what does it so mean? So this is something I quite, don't quite understand. If 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 God's talking about His heart and smelling the aroma, and we're we're made in His image, um, why doesn't He have blood? Because He doesn't have a body. God is His spirit. These, but these, that's confusing. Uh, well, it's it's known the, the uh, technical literary term is an anthropomorphism. <laughs> that we describe God in terms. I mean, it's like if you watch a Disney film, Lion King or something, those, all those animals are anthropomorphic. In other words, the animals 
that are depicted as behaving as if they were human. Yes. Uh, in your speaking, your smiling and so on. And these depictions of God are also given to us in anthropomorphic terms, which is to say that, uh, God is described to us as if he were human, uh, which I'm fairly confident is in order to aid our understanding. Yes, yes. Yes. So, you know, it doesn't, when God smelt the pleasing aroma, it doesn't mean that, you know, that, that certain, <laughs> um, you know, go. you know that he had a nose into which certain you know particles entered and so on, but rather that God, it it pleased God the 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 sacrifice was pleasing to him and he and it's expressed in those terms. Right. So the question is, what is the you know what's the metaphorical or the um, if you like the symbolic meaning of the heart that God says in His heart? For us, if I if I just help help you out in our culture, heart is often thought of in terms of emotion and feeling and that's the wrong answer here so what's the correct answer it's faith god doesn't have faith <laughs> god is faithful because god doesn't need to trust in anyone he already he knows all things faith is 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 based on promise but god doesn't receive promises he makes them his power no heart is not the place of power the will yes the will and that if like the desire you know the the will and the um the kind of um, intention uh, of a person. So we, you know, when Jesus says, you know, you must forgive your brother from your from the heart, he doesn't say you need to feel forgiving. They say you need to act forgiving. You need to determine and to decide uh, deliberately uh, and intentionally to be to forgive one, regardless of how you feel. If you want to look for feelings, you go for the belly. That's where feelings live. Heart is the place where you know, your brain, if you like, is is uh, and your head is for rational thought and calculation. Your heart is where you make decisions and, 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 and where your will resides. So when God says in his heart, it's another way of saying God determined and decided and, and, and he kind of acted in his will to the effect that I will never again curse the ground. Now we're here again. We are talking about um, uh, the ground being cursed. When was the ground cursed first? After Adam and Eve left the garden. Almost. It's before. Uh, before Adam and Eve left the garden. It was after the fall. It was the punishment on Adam. God cursed the ground. Cursed be the ground. And so on and the ground was cursed also against if you like Cain hmm. and uh, and now the if you like that curse was brought to full a final kind of devastating fulfillment owing to the utter corruption of the earth by the flood and now God said I will never again curse the ground so there's a kind of heart, partial reversal of the punishment if you like the curse or the punishment of uh, on Adam here, yeah. God, uh, at least he says that he, he will not go, you know, he will not do it again. He, he will not add to the curse on Adam, but there's a sort of God, God relents from, from his wrath. And he relents from his wrath because of Noah's offering. Dead, Noah dedicated himself and therefore his descendants in the human race, if you like, 
to God by that offering. And now God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So there's, a, if you like, there's a permanent truth. This is what Peter means when he talks about, uh, in 2 Peter, you know, Peter talks about those people who mock the uh, promise of Jesus' second coming. Where's the promise of his coming? You know, ever since our fathers, you know, that, you know, people have been, you know, lived and died and he still hasn't come back. And he says, God is not slow. What is he instead? Long-suffering. Yes, he's long-suffering. He's patient. And so God establishes this very, very long truth that I will never again curse the ground, regardless. And you think of all the things that have happened since the flood in the history of the world. You think of the atrocities committed by all the great empires of the world and then the atrocities committed by individuals. You've got the terrible Assyrians who are just the most unpleasant of people, you know, the sort of things they did to their enemies. Um, the number of people that Alexander the Great, you know, when, when, uh, was it Sidon or Tyre, one of those two, you know, didn't surrender when Alexander the Great came to, to, to conquer it and he besieged him when they finally had to give in, he kind of crucified just, he crucified just an endless number of, of the inhabitants to say, you know, don't you ever do that to me again. This sort of thing. You think of the Holocaust in the 20th century or the First and Second World Wars, all these things. And God said, no, I will not curse the ground. We're gone. If ever what about was, Sodom and Gomorrah? That's, yeah. But he, uh, it doesn't mean that God doesn't, God doesn't say, I will never punish sin. But he will not curse mm. the ground. No. He didn't curse the ground because of Sodom and Gomorrah. He just got rid of them. Well, I can ask, <clears throat> what, what does it actually mean to curse um, did God actually curse the ground or did he withdraw his grace and just allow his sin to, to flourish and to be fruitful? Because uh, everything seems to go out through the whole Bible, doesn't it? And it just seems a very unpleasant, uh, word. <laughs> yes, it is an unpleasant thing. Yeah. To be cursed is not a nice thing. And, uh, if you've ever visited, let alone, in a, if you've ever been in a, in a place or a culture where curses are, are, a common currency still, you know, that they are, you know, they, they, they are damaging and harmful things in the extreme. Uh, God said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles which shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Um, and eventually the ground will swallow us up as we return to the ground out of which we were taken. So the cursing of the ground is essentially to to make it unfruitful, to make it uh and to put in a make it an adversary essentially to us. And we have to fight the ground to yeah. force it to yield livelihood to us. And that's still the case. You know the, the amount of work that goes into producing a crop. I mean I was having a conversation with uh uh with my children the other day with this you know, thinking about when the um, there'd be a couple of uh, eruptions, volcanic eruptions. Mount Etna erupted uh, quite gently recently, and uh, you might have seen in the news that there's been a less gentle eruption just outside of Reykjavik in Iceland. And uh, we were just talked about the fact that they say that one of these days uh, Yellowstone is mm. going to erupt. Mm. Once that, if that goes, mm -hmm. uh, we will go straight back to an ice age. Mm. Yeah, and millions of people will die. 
and uh, and the whole thing is that if we live through that and all of a sudden the whole world economy just disappears and the climate changes, how many of us will, will actually manage to survive the first year simply because we we aren't good enough farmers? You know, ground will not, you know, the earth will not simply say, hey, here's some food, eat this. We have to really work hard to get enough food out of it, out of it to feed ourselves day after day. I mean, if you've, if you've ever done, you know, most of us have done gardening of some sort. And if you, you know, one of the fun things, easy things to grow is, is, you know, grow something like beans in the garden. And then when you go and harvest, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of, unless you've got a lot of, lot of them, but, you know, all all that summer's work, and and then you get to eat them, and you get two meals out of it. <laughs> have you have you had that experience? Yeah. yeah. And then you've you've eaten your carrots in less than a week, and so right now I've got fifty one weeks left. What do we eat next? Mm-hmm. And so this is what it means for the ground to be cursed. And the curse of the ground eventually was when the ground essentially is in the springs, if you like, the ground was flooded. You know, the springs of the uh, you know uh, of the deep where of the you know the Wells of the deep were were opened and and the and the ground was entirely flooded and God says, I won't do that again. I will not curse the ground, and we'll see a little bit more in a, in a minute. We'll hear more about what that means. But the reason, as we said, is not what you'd expect. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For uh, I have decided to be merciful, or for he's got some potential, or something like that. But rather says. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Mm-hmm. What sort of a reason is that? Didn't God curse the ground because of the evil of Adam? Didn't God curse the ground because of the evil of Cain and because of the evil of all the whole whole earth except Noah's family? So what sort of reason is this not to curse the ground? Judging by silence, we're not sure. Well, here's a guess. Um, because nothing would happen, nothing would go on, and, and uh, there'd just be no progress. Yeah, there's, it's a hopeless case. Yeah. You know, God says, I'm going to curse the ground every time man says, well, you know, this is, this is never going to work. You know, the evil of uh, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Yeah. Nothing's going to change. People are giving these. And God says, I'm not going to deal with it like that. And the moment he says that, something very, very important happens here. God says, in his heart. This is his decision of his will. The moment he says that, he's essentially implying that he's going to deal with the evil of man's heart in some other way. Through Jesus. And Jesus, yeah, exactly. But he left it a very long time before he... <laughs> yes, yes. What did we say God is? He's long-suffering, he's patient. Time doesn't mean much to God. No. It was, not, our, not our time. Did no, he hope was... that things would get better before they got... And they got worse and <laughs> what, then... He... What was that last bit? Did he hope, did the Lord hope that things would get better by themselves before he put Jesus in? If he did, that would make him very ignorant because he, he kind of he wouldn't know what's going on. Oh. 
So I wouldn't say so. No, I would say what in, instead of what we have here is that God essentially sets them apart. He, he I put it again in anthropomorphic terms. God remembered the promise he made to Eve. And so God at this point said, I will not pour out my rotten hole of mankind for the sin of mankind. And so the, if you like, the promise made to Eve of the seed of Eve that will crush the serpent's head is put again to the very forefront of God's activity in the world. And this is what we see happening as we read on in Genesis. And then it's neither will I again destroy, you know, strike down every living creature as I have done. So I will not do that again. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So while the earth remains, the seasons will continue. And here we are again linking back to Genesis 1. Fourth day of creation, sun, moon and stars were marking of sea, times and seasons. So God reestablishes, if you like, his creative intent in spite of man, the sin of mankind in spite of the evil of man's heart. And this is why this verse, these verses are one of the kind of key passages for understanding original sin. This is where it's, you know, it's made, really made clear that we are, you know, this sin is not something that happens to us, it's something that originates in us. I just add to that then and ask, because it talks about the human heart is evil from childhood. Why not from birth? Uh, it's, Let's uh, look, look at your translation. Uh, yeah, it says, uh, literally said from his youth, uh, because it's, it's, how should I put this? Uh, most of the time, uh, the Bible is, focuses on culpability, like what, what, um, moral philosophy, moral philosophers would call agency. Which means that, uh, once you talk about people in their youth, you're talking about people who are making decisions. And so the, the Old Testament particularly has, uh, has very, very little interest, if you like, in discussing, uh, the, uh, uh, uh the, uh, like moral responsibility of anyone who is below the age of decision. This is the kind of the Baptist. Baptist understanding at this point, that in this regard, the Baptists are right about talking about age of accountability. That the, um, essentially saying the moment people start making decisions, they make, they, they, they decide for you. It's not, um, because I would, you know, if you want to be really fastidious about this, if you want to be doctrinally really correct and, and precise, we would say from conception rather than from birth you know, from the beginning of life. And and we hear that later on, like in Psalm 51. But again, uh, this passage is not given to us in order to give us a, a, a an accurate and complete account of original sin, but rather it's given, us to, uh, given to us to give us an account of God's forbearance of us. So very often, you know, it, this is it's necessary and it's not a bad thing both in the Bible and outside the Bible, you'll find that things that are mentioned, if you like, in passing, that are incidental to the central point, are not necessarily always treated with the full force. 
even even if you look at something like the small catechism, you know, which gives us an account of 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 the chief points of the Christian faith, it's by no means exhaustive at all. It doesn't say everything there is to say, and there are all sorts of if you wanted to be if you wanted precision, you could go to the small catechism and say, hang on, you really need to say more than that. You need to say that differently. But that's not the purpose of it. So that's why that would be the the reason. Shall we get into chapter nine then? That took longer than I than I expected. There you go. Uh, so chapter nine uh, continues uh, straight on uh, from where we just left off. Uh, could we read on to verse the end of verse seven, someone, please? I'll read. Thank you. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its life lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for the image of God has God made man. Verse seven. Oh, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Thank you. Okay. God, so we had in uh, verse 20, Noah's response to God. Then, if you like, the thoughts of God's own heart. And now uh, what God speaks to Noah. And just before we look at this, uh, a quick reminder uh, the of the proper order, if you like, of... Um, under, or the, the, the proper the proper way of understanding the order of things in our relationship with God, and the, I, I learned this of uh, Pastor Will Whedon. All worship, all our relationship with God is in the shape of a W and not in the shape of an M, which is to say, it begins with God, comes down from God, and we then respond. Not that it begins with us and God responds. So God first rescued Noah, and then Noah made a sacrifice, and then God speaks to Noah and gives him a blessing. So it all begins with God. If you trace all the relations and all the interactions between man and God from this moment backwards in time, it traces you, you will always be led to Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. God always is the originator of our relation with God, uh, with him, with him, and we are not. That's why we don't have to dra- dance a rain dance when, when there's a drought. We can appeal to God, <laughs> to his promises that he's already made. 
So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them. So this is, uh, this is Noah and his sons and therefore his descendants. And you will see again that we go straight back to the original promises made at creation of man, at the creation of man in Genesis chapter one. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he has commanded, they are commanded to do what God had commanded uh, man to do at the beginning of creation when he created the male and female. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. What does this correspond to in Genesis 1? The first beginning of being able to eat the animals. But in Genesis 1, there's something specific in Genesis 1. What is that? The the food that they're allowed to have and that 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 they are not. But what is there, what is there, rather not there, what is there in Genesis 1 that corresponds to this? But Adam has a dominion. Yeah, that man has dominion over the official. Yeah, he's in charge. Yeah, so he has dominion, and now that dominion is is restated here, but it's uh, again expressed in a different way in terms of um, fear and dread. Now, fear can mean, fear doesn't need to be a negative thing. Fear can mean, simply mean, if you like, a respect and honor and awe, which is perfectly legitimate without being what, without being a negative thing. Uh, but it's also called, um, dread or trembling, if you like. In other words, there is now expressed here, a disjuncture between man and beast, a man, man and the animal kingdom. They're not in harmony. But one is in charge and the other one is in fear. It's, it's almost like a sort of form of enslavement or captivity, which shows that things aren't as they were at the beginning, which is why, you know, when it says, uh, when it says, for, you know, for example, God says through Isaiah that, you know, the lion shall, uh, lay down the, the wolf and so on and, and the lion will a lion, um, so the lamb shall lie down with the wolf and the lion shall eat straw it's what God is promising there is that when it comes to the new creation as opposed to the renewal of the old creation with sin still, pre- sin still present when God restores all things by the removal of sin then the violence that is now endemic will be gone and there will no longer be you know, the child, you know, little child can put his hand in the, in the den of an Adam, which at the moment is a lethal affair, but then won't be. And so it's the same thing expressed, but with the, an acknowledgement of the presence of, uh, of sin and death. And the gift, if you like, of God to man is that the animal kingdom will live in fear of man as opposed to the other way around. They are delivered into the hand. And not just for dominion, but every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So for the first time, God permits and authorizes the eating of animals for food. 
Now, that's not to suggest that everybody was a vegetarian until then. But rather, this is the first time that it God allows it. That it's, it's not... Uh, and again, I'm, I, I speak as somebody who is, is, is a rather enthusiastic carnivore. Okay, I, I like a good steak, and there, there, there are very few types of meat that uh, that I, I haven't enjoyed. That I, when I've tasted them, I and I, I would make a very miserable and, and grumpy vegetarian or, uh, or vegan if you if you tried to make me one. Um, but nevertheless, the, that we are eating living creatures is in itself a sign of something being seriously wrong with creation. That we are draining out the lifeblood from creatures made by God for our own nourishment. Which is to say that death has been normalized. Now, God normalizes it here. In other words, say, this is the way the world is now, and he permits and he if you like, allows it to be the case. But it is not what was given originally. Which is why it's again so significant that when God wants to give us food that lasts into eternity, he gives us living food that doesn't die, which is the body of Jesus. That's the real, that's the, you know, that's food that doesn't die in the process of being eaten and doesn't diminish and need replenishment. But for the time being, and then remember this, that every, and this is true of all things, but in this world, life is only possible by exacting death. We only live because other things die for us. That's the way of the world. Plants and if you, if you are carnivore animals, and if they don't die, you will. And that is the way of the world. And that will be the way of the world until death is abolished. 19th century uh, atheist philosopher, German philosopher, if I remember correctly, he was a son of a Lutheran pastor, but he became a Ludwig Feuerbach, very famously said that you are what you eat. Which is uh, quite a good, good. it works better in uh, um, in, in German. Because the word for is, man is what he eats, they, they pronounce the same. Man ist, uh, was man ist. But, uh, it, it's not quite so good in English, but you are what you eat. And that's true. And what do you eat? You eat, you eat death. And therefore you are also, you know, the food that we eat has already been drained of its life. And therefore it can only sustain us. For a little while and not ultimately not at all. But, verse four, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Sometimes that the word life is also translated soul. Uh, <clears throat> it's the uh, Hebrew word is nephesh. Uh, which is translated as life or a soul, depending on, on your translation, where you, where you look. Uh, 
it doesn't mean soul in the Greek philosophical sense, but it rather it means soul as in the, if you like, to put it in, in slightly vague terms, kind of like if the, the life force within you, it comes from the, the root of the word comes the word for throat, the bit where the breath goes in and out. So it's not a reference to an existing kind of an, a separate substance, body and soul, when you know, there's your body and there's your soul and they kind of come together and come apart again, but rather the life that is that animates your body. <coughs> and that is in its blood. And so the prohibition of the consumption of blood here predates the Mosaic law. It goes all the way to here to Noah. And it becomes an, an absolute rule until the coming of Christ. And, and until the uh, removal of all dietary restrictions, if you like, uh, by Christ who, who proclaimed all foods clean. Now, again, this is an important thing. So in, in, in uh, the law of Moses in Leviticus 17, this law is reiterated. You must not consume blood. What should you do with blood? If you're, if you're killing an animal, what must you do? Drain it out. You must drain the blood and do what with it, with the blood? You sprinkle it. Sorry? You sprinkle it on the altar? Uh, in sacrifices, yes. But if you're just having a, having a dinner party, All right. what, what do you do with the blood? Well, you wouldn't have it, would you? But what do you do with it? I mean, there's all this blood. What do you do with it? In the garden, the slaughterhouse. <laughs> they didn't have slaughterhouses in those days. <laughs> well, you pour it away. You pour it into the ground. You return yeah. it to the ground out of which it came. Uh, yeah. It's uh, the uh, Hebrew word for a uh, ground is adama, and the word for blood is dam, which both kind of means red thing. But there is this that you know, life. You know, God is like we we uh, came a life. Life came from the ground and is returned to the ground. Yeah. So it helps the ground to um, re-fertilize. Yes, but that's not the reason. It does do that, but that's not the reason. It's not an agricultural kind of good piece of good agricultural advice, but rather to say it's not yours. The life, it had its life, and it's not your life. You have your life, it has its life. You don't consume its life. And this partly refers to, uh, relates to ancient practices that were very, very common, and you still find it in some cultures today, where there was a very strong belief that uh, consuming blood and, and therefore if the lifeblood of, of another creature was an important practice in strengthening your own uh, your your own lifeblood. So you know you kind of the sort of thing that where you drink the blood of a bull in order to get the strength of a bull. Um, and and one reason it's thought that God, the Bible's very very strict about this is to say now you you got your life from God. You don't try and improve or strengthen your life by sharing the lives of others. No, they've lived their life. You've taken that life. You've thrown it back to where it came from, the return to the earth. And our life comes from God. What is the one legitimate use of blood? So you don't drink it. You don't eat it. Yeah, Mike. I was just going to say it's practiced in another way as well today in uh the uh, sacrament at the altar, if not, if all the wine, which is the blood of Christ, is not consumed, then it should be returned to the earth. Hmm. That is done. Uh, 
quite commonly, yes, you're right. Um, you can give your blood to somebody else who needs it, especially if it's a very different blood that they can't find anywhere else. Right. Being in a nurse. The Bible doesn't say that. I don't know where it says it, but it that's doesn't. how it is. It doesn't. You're right. You're correct. But I'm asking you in the Bible, what's the one, one use of the blood that is authorized in the Old Testament? Ah, you didn't say in the Old Testament. Is to well, put up the, the door frames when the, um, to save the, save the people that are inside the houses. Yes, the God commands the daubing of the doorposts and the lintel with blood. Mm. What about in general? Does anyone remember? Leviticus 17 is the reference. What is blood for? Life. It is life. What is it for? To keep the body going. No, no, no. What's it used to be used for? Are the, you know, the blood of an animal. Atonement. Blood is for atonement. So the one thing you do, you can use blood for, for atonement is for sacrifices. Hence the doorpost. Hence the sprinkling of blood on the altar and on the people as well. And this is an important key to understanding why Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. I remember a very long car journey once as a student to a Christian student conference, and I was sitting in the back seat next to a good friend of mine, a very charming um, young uh, theology student who later became a lawyer, and uh, uh, also very devout Baptist then and now. And uh, we, we talked by the Lord's Supper and sort of, more or less arguing out the Baptist versus Lutheran position. And she kind of said, well, I hear what you're saying, but I, I just don't see why Jesus would do that, why he would give that to us. And being young and inexperienced and not very thoughtful at the time, I didn't have a very good answer. So I've spent many years thinking about it and reading about it. And I think I could give a better answer now. And the answer begins here. The life's in his blood. Life is in the blood. And so if Christ gives his blood to drink, what's he giving us? His life. He's giving us his life to drink. So, you know, we don't drink the blood of bulls in order to get the strength of bulls or the blood of lions to get the courage and, and, and kind of ferocity of lions, but we do drink the blood of Christ in order to get the life of Christ. Life is in his blood. And then verse five onwards, we've got the, uh, it connected to it. Your lifeblood. So animal's blood, you don't eat uh, the flesh with the blood. And for your lifeblood, uh, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So now God is putting a very high premium on the life of man. So you may kill and eat animals, but neither man nor beast may kill a man or a person, human. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And now this is Genesis 1 again. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply. What is God saying here? You must not murder anybody. That's true. He's saying more than that, actually. 
It's actually God has given us the life because it comes all from Him. So nobody's allowed to take it away from us. Yeah. So the life, our life, and the life, but is from God, and therefore no one has authority to take it, except what? Except when we die. Then we go to he- go to Jesus. And that's not what it says here. What is no. it? It's it is if if somebody kills somebody, you are paying for your own life. Correct. This is the extension in which is later on articulated in the Law of Moses: life for eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, a fracture for a fracture, bruise for a bruise, and a life for a life. This is why in the Old Testament. And in, uh, in, 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 generally speaking, in the Christian world until the 20th century, and still in some places, murder was always punishable by death. Because it was the only thing that was commensurate with the crime. Man was made in God's image, and even though that image has been corrupted and marred, by sin, nevertheless, God created us in his own image, and therefore a sin against human life is a sin against God himself. And there is nothing more precious than anyone has than the life that they receive from God. And therefore, it's simply not acceptable that you should get away with killing another person, murdering another person. Or that you should get away with it by paying a fine or spending some time in prison or any such thing. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And now what Luther points out here in his commentary on Genesis is that this hereby God establishes earthly government, temporal government. Because he now, there's a distinction here now between, if you like, individual action and uh, how should we call it? Uh, collective action. Because you'd say, well, isn't that a contradiction in terms? If killing a man, killing a person is wrong, then surely capital punishment is wrong too, because that's killing a person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do we agree that that's a contradiction? Yes. Yeah. No, it's not. Mm. Why? Why? I'm glad you asked me. Let me tell you. <laughs> what happens if you come into my house? And you start, let's just presume that it's not illegal to come to my house and we have our freedoms back and you come be, and you start behaving abominably and you, uh, smash the piano to bits and you break all the crockery <laughs> and you start threatening violence. And in order, I get so angry with you that I decide and I, I shove you in the, in the shower room and then I put a bolt on the door and lock and leave you in there and push a plate of food once a day under the door, uh, so that you don't die because you behave so badly. Now, what well, you're happens... all going to smell a bit after a few days. Well, you are. No, I'm not. You are. No, because you haven't got a shower. Oh, I see. I've got <laughs> the other one. They got okay. We've got two. <laughs> what happens if you manage to alert the police and they come? What will they do to me? They oh, they'll arrest the you, I imagine. And if they arrest me, they'll take me where? To the to the police. To the jail. Uh, uh, hang on. So they're oh, locking me up. Station. They're you're locking me up for locking you up. I thought yeah, you would like to yeah. lock people up. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, no, you're at the police station to give a statement. 
Well, yeah, but if if I mean, what will happen is I will go to prison. <laughs> but it was the now first they're... one that did the trouble, not locking well, up or locking you up, because locking people up is wrong. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, the only people yeah. who can do that are the people who are in the law. Thank you. They have been given authority by God. The governing authorities, as, as Romans 13 calls them, are the servants of God to punish evildoers and to reward those who do right. Yeah. And they have been given, I quote from Romans 13, the sword. The way that it's been expressed in modern political science is that government has a monopoly on violence. Yeah. You may not arrest people, you know, may not restrict people's freedom. If you do, the government will restrict your freedom. They're the only people who have allowed to do it. Like the only, not the only people, the only only um, authority that has is, is the collective authority of the governing authority. And this is also, this is why evildoers who do evil are punished in a way that is commensurate with their crimes. So if you are a thief, there's a good chance that you have to return what you've stolen and go to prison. Or at least pay a fine. So the governing authorities have the right to extort money from you if you extort money from other people. In other words, individual, if you like the, the, like the Ten Commandments, for example, which are the summary of God's law for us, the Ten Commandments are dealing with the question of how should I treat my neighbor? Individual relationship. But over that, we have the Fourth Commandment, which establishes Governing authority in the families, parents in society is the government and other authorities in the church also. And the purpose of that, if you like, the governing authority on whichever scale, whether it's a family, community or society or country or countrywide, is to enforce the individual rules. So fifth commandment says you should not kill. And so the fourth commandment says, and here are the people who make sure that it happens. And if it doesn't happen, then we, they're going to act on for the protection of everyone. So the moral rules that apply to individuals do not apply to governments. And so if I kill you, the government has the right to kill me for the protection of society. And it's not the same crime. It's not the same moral act because they are not, it's not one person against, it's not the execution of the me, you know, Bob the executioner versus me, Tapani the pastor. It's society removing somebody and punishing somebody for a crime that they've committed in a way that is commensurate with the crime. In the same way that the government might, you know, freeze my assets if I if I've stolen lots of money and I can't repay it back and won't pay it back. They will simply freeze my bank account, they will take over my house and so on and so on. Not your house. <laughs> I have a house. Oh I see. <laughs> yeah, I just don't live in it. <laughs> So, I suppose that's a way that you also excuse wars, isn't it? No, you don't have to excuse them. This is the, the way explains them. I mean, if, who's going to defend, you know, let's say that uh, somebody finally manages after, you know, a thousand years of trying, somebody manages to invade England. An army pours across, you know, you know, uh, across the English Channel uh, into England. Yeah. It means that it exposes the population to mortal danger. From violent force. So what, what, what's the government supposed to do? Defend. Exactly. And so they will, they have the right to defend the innocent in order to preserve life. Yep. The armies would kill the people coming across the water. And therefore the British army will fight against them. Hmm. Defend them. 
Luckily, they didn't get here this time. Well, not last time, but this has happened <laughs> enough, and the British Army has fought in defence of others. Yeah, and 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 this is why armies exist, and they need to exist. You know, Gandhi had this brilliant idea when he was asked, you know, when when he was exposing his 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 absolute pacifism that you, it's always your wrong to use violence. And somebody said to him, "What should the Belgian people have done in 1914, or in 1939, in 1940? Sorry, when the when the Germans came, well, they should have linked arms and just fought, you know, walked walked towards the German lines." Oh, fine. And to which I say, "What a fool!" Very famous, a very famous, very successful man, but complete fool. That yeah. it, that the Belgian government should essentially have abandoned this population to an aggressive violent force would have been the the uh, would have been an extremely ungodly thing to do which is therefore to say that uh, you know one of the things if, you know, there are certain things with uh, where I disagree with the Roman Catholic Church quite strongly and one of them is the Roman Catholic Church these days has uh, officially agrees with Quakers uh, in saying that uh, capital punishment is uh, a moral evil. And it simply can't be uh, for the simple reason that God commanded. Um, I do think that in modern, complex and kind of quite impersonal societies with very, very large population centers, the administration of capital punishment safely and justly is nigh on impossible. So for practical reasons, I wouldn't be in favour of reinstating capital punishment in Britain because the chances of miscarriage of justice is too high. But I cannot see that anyone can argue from a Christian perspective that that capital punishment is wrong or evil as such. Because what it's really doing, I mean, this is the thing, we believe in the sanctity of life. And to say we believe in the sanctity of life is to say we put the highest possible value on life. And if that is the case, then the taking of life is a travesty and a moral evil on such a scale that no amount of deprivation of freedom or monetary punishment, kind of monetary punishment can possibly be considered to be adequate. And that's why it's so horrible to think about so many of the governments that freely give the give the the right to kill innocent little children before they even are born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is what we're thinking. You know, when you think of defenseless life, there is no life more defenseless than the unborn child in its mother's womb, which is supposed to be the safest place on earth. And when that becomes a scene of violence, it's. I mean. We think of ourselves as such advanced and, and, and sort of morally superior people in our civilization that we've left the dark, dark, dark ages and all that stuff behind us. We have no idea. You know, we, we, in this country alone, over 200,000 unborn children are killed every year in their mother's womb. Mm-hmm. And the government of this country are so believe it's such an important thing that they're quite happy to ride quite rough, you know, roughshod over. Uh, things like um, devolution agreements and to to force uh, the good people of Northern Ireland to be allowed to abort their babies too if the people of Northern Ireland don't want it themselves. 
you know, just this. I, I, I'd agree with that because people in Northern Ireland don't want that level of abortion. And uh, we've just been r- uh, roughly mistreated, I think. Just um, We're very annoyed about it, that uh, the government of the United Kingdom has given us powers and then taken back the powers and said, well, no, you're going to have abortion. Because generally the people in Northern Ireland don't want abortion. Yeah, and, and, and the fact that they, the government have decided that this is the one issue where they're simply going to overrule yeah. democratically elected residents in there. There are all sorts of other things going on in Northern Ireland. The one thing which must absolutely must happen is abortion. And that tells you just how incredibly corrupt our moral compass is becoming you know, as, as a nation. And it's, you know, it's, it's something that we need to, you know, we need to pray for and, and take action for, um, in any way that we can, uh, to, to defend the defenseless when when those who've been appointed to that task which is the governing authorities refuse to do so um on that rather unpleasant note i suppose um we've got to the end of this section and then we the, a new section begins at verse eight i was really quite optimistic about getting through quite a lot of this and uh, we we instead of going wide we went deep so I, I, I beg your pardon if if, if you uh, if, if if you found this frustrating, and I hope that it was nevertheless uh, fruitful and helpful uh, for you. What we will do next time is uh, conclude uh, chapter nine. And it's from here on it gets much quicker because it, it, as I said, it's quite repetitive and, and uh, so I think I said uh, quite expansively. So you cover a lot of verses with. Uh, uh, quite quickly. Uh, however, next Thursday is Maundy Thursday, uh, and uh, the uh, week uh, a week after that, uh, I am uh, taking some time off. So we are going to have two weeks uh, break uh, from Bible study. Uh, if there's no Bible study next week or the week after, we will con- uh, continue um, in three weeks' time. And we'll uh, then have, hopefully we will fly through the uh, remaining uh, two and a half uh, chapters um, uh, that we have left uh, before we get to the end of this particular Bible study series. We have a Maundy service. Too. I will send details of all the services uh, for right. Holy Week uh, very soon. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh We've got a couple of minutes left. If anyone's got any any final comments or questions uh, to make on what we have studied today, or anything that is pertinent to it, well, I just look it, how how clear it all is that we really, really, really needed somebody to atone us. You know, that we are so, in so, so many ways, we are all the time just breaking the law and, and just thinking, you know, how long he will be watching us and not doing even something more than this, this virus. Yeah. I mean, if God's, <coughs> if God's, that God is willing to wait and to put up with us for years and centuries and millennia. While he awaits the fulfillment of his plan of salvation is, you know, quite extraordinary. I mean, we think of how impatient we get with minor inconveniences in our life and then compare what with God, you know, the, you know, when, when he says, for example, the blood of Abel is crying from the ground, 
to God because his his death was an, that of an innocent man at the hand of a hand of an, a wicked transgressor. Well, how many Abels are crying out from the ground to God? And God is saying, I will act on that, but let's give it more time. And when things do happen, whether it's, you know, COVID pandemic or, uh, or war or other things that, you know, that can cause us to uh, lose, uh, lose some of our freedoms or, or, or places in danger or simply cause suffering or put us closer to uh, the reality and the presence of death. It's easy to sort of complain and, and to wonder why is this ha- why this is happening to us. But actually, there is, there, you know, what, one thing we should we should always be mindful of. You know, this is so far from what we actually deserve. It's a reminder. God sends us these chastisements to remind us to discip- discipline us and to remind us of of the fact that you know we death is real and we deserve it. And yet whatever comes our way is not what we deserve. We deserve eternal punishment and we're not getting it. Jesus died for us. And the worst that's going to happen to us that uh, war or disease or some such thing will kill us, but then we will be raised to eternal life. And so when, when God deprives us of, of some of the joys of life, um, it's always an opportunity for us to repent. I always like to tell the story of the true story of, um, uh, it's a small town in Germany called Lüneburg, uh, and the young Johann Sebastian Bach uh, was appointed as the director of music there uh, in May. So this is about in the 1720s, um, and he was appointed in May uh, to take up his post in July. And between his appointment and his um, and, and his taking up his post, uh, there was a devastating fire, and half the town burned up, burned down, and. Uh, uh, I think some people died and obviously it was a huge amount of damage. So the very first service that Bach was in charge of as the director of music was, as said, the first church service following the fire of Lunable, which is, had destroyed half the town. What do you think was the theme of that service? If you were in charge, what would you have made it? Somebody, we must have some liturgical ideas here. <laughs> what would be a, as an appropriate theme for a service following a devastating fire that had destroyed half your town and killed people? To pray that's for all the people who died. That's oh. that maybe, but I mean, they, they, it's too late for them. Be, be grateful that we are still, we have been saved. That's a, certainly a good idea. We, we who survived and are still here, we give thanks. But it was neither of those things. It was a service, it was a penitential service. And the theme of that service is, it survives because, we know this because he wrote some music for it that survives to this day. It was essentially a service of confession of penitence saying, you know, this has happened, this has happened to us and we deserve worse because of our sin. Have mercy on our sin. Which is a kind of attitude to disaster that I think the church could do with these days as well. Let's begin by looking at it and why, why would God allow such things to do, to happen to us? And in our hearts and in our lives, we find loads of reasons for that. 
why would God allow us to be in house arrest for a year, under house arrest for a year? Lots of reasons. Lots of reasons. And that is only for a year and it's, and we can do it from the comfort of our homes and it's, it's not, and we're not worse things have happened to us. Should fill us with amazement and wonder at God's great love for us and his patience with us. You know, Noah might have felt a little bit aggrieved, you know, 10 months into his confinement in the ark. All he had to do was just have a glance out the window, say, what, what was it like outside? And what might have happened to him if God hadn't been merciful? And that's, that's also the case with us. Good. Let's, let's stop there. And uh, as I said, we, we resume our study uh, in three weeks time. So let's close with prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you for the promises that you made to Noah, to Moses and to all the patriarchs and prophets. And above all, for the great promise of salvation, which you have brought to us through your son, Jesus Christ, who shed his lifeblood for our atonement. Grant us penitence over our sins. Renew our hearts to love the truth and above all, strengthen our faith in Jesus that clinging to the salvation that he has brought to us, we may live our lives in your care and be brought to that kingdom of peace where sin and death shall be no more. Keep us in this passion tide and as we approach Holy Week and help us to see, uh, see and hear afresh the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, that we might be renewed, uh, again convinced of your good to- goodwill towards us. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.